The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. It's great. They love books, but most of these books are so simple and so obviously written that anybody, anybody, a third grader could have written them. But even the more complex books have one commonality in the children's section. None of them have any flaws in their primary characters. The good guys are good, and the bad guy is bad. There is no complexity in their character at all. Two weeks ago, Pastor Neglia asked a really great question during his sermon, which was, who is the protagonist? Who is the good guy here? And of course, the answer was that Jacob and Esau were both the bad guys in that scenario. Recently, we've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series with my kids, and one of the most refreshing things about that is that those books are nothing like the other books that I just mentioned. The so-called good guys often mess up. They often make mistakes. They are liars. They are betrayers. They are disobedient. They are rude. But there is a character in every book that is perfect, and he is Aslan, the lion figure that represents Jesus. And when any of these other protagonists come into contact with him, they always immediately see how unlike him they really are. Now, while there are some theological flaws in C.S. Lewis's writing, I am consistently impressed how he has a tendency to write his characters in a way that paints them in a very realistically sinful manner, while giving all glory for their growth and sanctification to God. I want us to be very careful this morning about how we approach the text of Scripture that is before us. For one thing, you're going to quickly see that there are no good guys here. There are no perfect people in this story. All of them are deeply flawed. Every single member of this family is living out a pattern of sin. There is no one here that we should emulate or elevate as a moral example. But I also want us to be careful not to simply boil this down to a checklist of things not to do. This is not a moralistic approach of what to avoid. Now, although I am going to cover obvious truths like don't lie, don't play favorites with your kids, don't cheat, and so on, what I really want you to see is that these people are rotten to the core. And when we get a real picture of who they are, they are deeply and fully flawed. This is when Genesis shifts the camera from the life of Isaac now permanently to the life of Jacob. From this point forward, Isaac will never again be our focal point. And the narrator is presenting all of this information in such a way that we are supposed to find ourselves identifying with the character of Jacob. We're supposed to see exactly how sinful he is so that we might see in a very reflective way just how sinful we are. We see his need of grace, and in seeing his need of grace, we should resonate with that. And we see God's love for him in spite of how horrible he is, and that should drive us to a deeper love of God and see how much he has done for us. As we examine this very familiar and treacherous event a little more carefully this morning, I want your eyes to be more open to the magnitude of the saving grace of God. I want your eyes to be more aware of how he stooped down so low to bring us up. He has come down to us who are broken, sin-sick, and helpless so that he might be able to elevate us to be in a right relationship with him again. We should be amazed at the grace of God who would be willing to go to the measure of sending his own son Jesus to die in order to save people like Jacob and people like us. So let's pray to that end now, that God would bring us to our knees in this way. Our Father in heaven, we pray once again for this sermon. Lord, it is so easy for us to become creatures of habit, children of routine, who just go in and out of our daily lives, not truly thinking or considering about what we are doing. But God, today as we stand beneath your word, as we gather around it, God, I pray that you would remind us just how valuable this word of God is. And God, I pray that you would help us to see exactly who your son is, that we would be even more aware of your grace and your love. Lord, we cannot change ourselves. We are desperate. We need you. 
So God, I pray that today you would work in an amazing way in our heart. Please, Lord, for each individual here that knows you, sanctify them, put a fire within them that causes them to grow more and and that would cause them to run hard after Christ. And Lord, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would break down all of those barriers, break down the walls, let them see Jesus clearly, and let them run, run to you for the forgiveness of their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One time when I was growing up, I went to a family reunion. We used to have a lot of family reunions. I had a lot of extended family. And at one of these family reunions, we were at my great-grandparents' home, and I was surrounded by a lot of people that I had never met. And there was a lot of kids at this thing. I'm guessing probably 30 to 40 of us. And they ushered all of us kind of back into this back room, and they just said, okay, you watch TV. So we watched television for a very long time. And as we were back there, there was a show that came on that I had never seen before. It was my very first and I think my only exposure to the Jerry Springer show. Now, I was probably like seven or eight years old. I didn't understand that this was a thing, you know, that people enjoyed and got pleasure out of people completely disintegrating on television, that their families were just dissolving in front of them, that this got some kind of sick pleasure in the heart of the viewers. But you could see how every single member of the family that was on that show was incredibly selfish, and they were self-centered, and they were bitter, and all of them were blameworthy. After a while, one of my older relatives came into the room, and he wisely changed the channel, and I said something along the lines of, I'm really glad our family isn't like that family. And I don't even know who this man was. He was an uncle or third cousin or something. I'm not sure. And he said to me, you know, every family is at least a little bit like that. You know, the Bible is the eternal word of God, and in it we have an eternal record of the faults and flaws of this family, which is one of the most famous families in all of history. The way that we're going to approach this text this morning is by examining five people. We'll start with Esau, and we'll look at Isaac, and then Jacob, Rebecca, and then Jacob, And finally, we'll close with Jesus. We're going to begin with Esau. And the reason that we're going to do that is because the text, the way that it was probably originally divided in the Hebrew, actually begins with the story of Esau. And if you remember back to our series in the book of Mark, you'll be very familiar of what an inclusio is. It's like a sandwich where you have the beginning and the end, and they they match, and then the rest of the story is in the middle that relates to it in some way, shape, or form. It's like a, a sandwich, and the top slice of bread is found actually in chapter 26, verses 34 through 35, which says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife and Basimeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This story actually begins with Esau's marriages to women he was not supposed to marry. These were the exact people that Abraham had commanded Isaac to stay away from. Now Esau would have certainly known the great love story of his father. He would have certainly known the great love story of how Abraham sent the servant all the way across the desert to bring back Rebekah, his bride. Of course he would have known, yet the grandson of Abraham was quick to run away from the pattern that had been set for them, and he married Hittite women that made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, we don't know exactly how that happened, but what we have to imagine is that there was deep sin involved in some way, shape, or form. These women were bringing frustration and bitterness and perhaps idolatry into the camp. Then we see the bottom slice of bread. This is uh, the end of the inclusio, which we find in chapter 28, verse 9. It says, So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife. Besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now please understand, as we read this story, it can almost be natural for us to have a pity for Esau. As we read through the story, we're like, oh, this is terrible. How is it that this innocent guy lost everything that he should have rightfully had? Please understand, we are not supposed to pity Esau. Although he was the victim of Jacob and Rebekah's deceit, he was also an incredibly ungodly man. For him, the birthright and the blessing that were promised were all about temporal earthly gains. They had nothing to do with a genuine desire to bear the covenant promises. They were nothing about the spiritual things that he wanted. Now, I believe that the marriage of Esau 
to the daughter of Ishmael is supposed to help us to correlate the two. Just like Ishmael was outside of the promises, now Esau has married into his line. We see he is outside of the promises as well. But let's imagine the day that this event happened, the day of the lying of Jacob. Let's imagine this day from Esau's point of view for just a minute. His father calls him in, probably early in the morning, and he says to him, he gives him this deal, in verse 27, chapter 27, verse 3, Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. It sounds like a great deal, right? This sounds like a really good deal to Esau. But when he returned, the blessing was gone. It had been given to another. Look a little closer now at verses 34 through 38. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, now as I, as I read this, hear the malice in his voice. Is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob, by the way, just means deceiver. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him as servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. For then, what then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. Now what I want you to see happening here is that there is counterfeit repentance taking place with Esau. He is weeping, but why is he weeping? When he lost his birthright, he lost the lion's share of the inheritance. But what is this blessing? Well, if the birthright is the last will, then the blessing is the testament. They are often paired together. I don't know of any other instance in all of ancient history where the blessing and the birthright were ever separated. It was typically also a public declaration of how the family was going to operate after the, the father figure had died. So understand it this way. Simply put, the birthright gives you the control of all of the possessions, the, the, the housing, the food, the land, the animals. It's like the stuff, the physical things. But the blessing is what passed down authority and status. That's why we see Isaac blessing Jacob with things like lording over and ruling over his siblings and all of the land and the livestock. So we're going to look at that a little closer in a little bit. But right now I want you to see that God is using the earthly traditions of things like birthrights and blessings so that he can indicate who he has chosen to inherit the promise. Esau was not interested in spiritual things. He was not interested in the spiritual side of the promises. He couldn't care less about the covenant, but he was filled with sorrow over the loss of temporal gains. He was filled with sorrow over the loss of all of those animals and the land and the houses and the servants and the ruling over his brothers. He was distraught because he lost his control and his power. But he was not at all concerned about eternal blessings. The New Testament shed some more light on his false repentance in this way, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17, which says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That should catch your attention. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now this should be shocking and really shiver-inducing for us as we read that statement. 
The author of Hebrews is writing to a New Testament group of people, and he is warning them. He is making a correlation between Esau's sexual immorality and his unholy living and the fact that he was unrepentant. And then he is superimposing that over the New Testament church and he is warning them, he is declaring to us that these kinds of lifestyles represent that someone is outside of the promises. John MacArthur describes the situation this way. He says, Perhaps the saddest and most godless person in the scripture outside of Judas is Esau. Esau was not only immoral, but was godless. He had no ethics, no faith, no scruples, no reverence. He had no regard for the good or the truthful or the divine. He was totally worldly, totally secular, totally profane. Christians are to be vigilant that no person such as Esau contaminate Christ's body. So see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. When Esau finally woke up to some extent and realized what he had forsaken, he made a half-hearted attempt to retrieve it. But just because he sought for it with tears does not indicate sincerity or true remorse. He found no place for repentance. He bitterly regretted, but he did not repent. He selfishly wanted God's blessing, but he did not want God. He had fully apostatized and was forever outside the pale of God's grace. End quote, and well said. If you are living in habitual sin and you carry the name of a brother, you say that you're a Christian, I hope that this really shakes you to your core. Tears are not a valid reason to think that you are converted. They didn't convert Esau. Experiences, special prayer, signing a card, raising your hand at a special event going to confession or being baptized, these emotional events, these, these types of things don't necessarily mean that your heart has been changed by God. If you do become a genuine believer, it is accompanied by a wholesale change of your life and of your priorities. Your life becomes marked by a love for Jesus. Where there was previously no taste for heaven, no taste for the things of God, there is now a hunger and a thirst that you experience that cannot be quenched by anything other than God himself. So before we make another move, I simply want to ask you, have you genuinely repented? I mean truly repented of your sin and come to Christ? Or are you basing your salvation on an emotional moment where you got a small sense of the reality of God? In the excellent article, The Unrepenting Repenter, Jim Elif explains the danger of this kind of false repentance. He says, quote, Here is a kind of amnesia. You see the awful specter of sin in the mirror and flinch out of horror, yet you immediately forget what kind of person you saw. It's true, repentance includes sincere emotion and affection for God and dissatisfaction for sin. Torrents of sorrow may flood the repenter's heart, and properly so. But there is such a thing as a temporary emotion in the mere semblance of repentance. This emotion has very weak legs and cannot carry the behavior in the long walk of obedience. Your sorrow may even be prolonged, yet if it does not arrive at repentance, it is of the world and is a living death. It is an old deceiver. Judas had remorse, but he went and hanged himself. End quote. Friends, I want you to consider 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, which says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I plead with you today, examine your heart. Examine your heart to see if you have ever genuinely repented and turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Let's move now on to the second family member that we encounter in this narrative, which is the father, Isaac. Isaac was now an old man. He had lived his life digging wells in the bright sun and in the barren wastes, and it eventually caused him to lose his sight. Now, he doesn't really seem to get out of his tent much from what we read in this text. It appears as though he's mostly waited upon inside his home. Back in 2010... It's the first time I ever went to City Field. I hadn't gone to see a Mets game since they were in Shea Stadium. And I got, I got some tickets somehow, and I invited a youth student 
and and I had a few extras, so I asked him to bring his unsaved father and his unsaved sister with him, so that we might all go to this game together. But I had honestly I had no idea what I was about to get into. When I went to pick them up, the young man kind of last second decided I don't actually want to go. So the young man's father, who I had never met, and his sister, who I had never met, and his other sister, who I had never met, all piled into my car, and we made our way over to Shea, uh, to uh, City Field. Now, what I want you to understand is the father, he was very old, and the children had been adopted in his old age. So now he was roughly, I would guess, in his early 90s. He might have been mid-90s at this point. So we, we got them into the car, we got to the, the stadium, and the, the older man, he was now at the point where he had become almost completely deaf and almost completely blind. And he did not want my help. And he didn't, I don't think, realize this is a new stadium than the one he was used to. So I didn't know where I was going, and he did not want my help, and he didn't know where he was going. It became a, a big challenge. But finally we got to our seats, and we were sitting there. I realized something that I, I, I didn't really understand at the time. It was Jackie Robinson Day, so everybody's wearing the same number, 42. I know practically nothing about baseball. But this poor guy, he, he sat down next to me, and he pulled out this large plate. It's like the size of my iPad, like this. It was a magnifying glass that he held over his eyes so he could see what was happening. And we weren't very far from the field. You know, they're Mets tickets. They're very cheap. And so we were pretty close, and he couldn't really tell what was going on at all. After about 15 minutes, he turned to me and he said, Oh, I see. They got those guys' pictures up there, right? He was talking about the 52-foot-tall, 105-foot-wide board where they present the pictures of the players. And even that, he couldn't really see through this giant magnifying glass that he was holding in front of him. And there was a little bit of a problem here. The only thing he could really make out were the numbers on the jerseys, and everybody was wearing number 42. So he had no clue what was happening the entire game. Ultimately, he didn't end up watching. He just told me stories about how he used to drive Jackie Robinson around in his cab back in the 40s. Well, what I want you to know about this story is as we were getting ready to leave... His daughters were helping him up and down the stairs, and they kept playing this little prank on him. He would ask them, now, which one are you? And they would lie to him, and he would have no idea. And they thought this was hilarious. Now, that's the condition that Isaac seems to be in in this story. His body has begun to collapse from a life of hard labor, and his mind is with him, but he thinks at this point he is about to die. Now, we're not going to spend an extensive amount of time with Isaac for one reason. And that is, I'm not entirely sure what aspects of his involvement here are sinful. Let me explain. I think Pastor Jim uh, put this really well. We can definitely say that there are certain areas of his life that are sinful. Last week, Pastor Jim said that uh, when he lied about his wife and said, that's my sister, that was a very sinful thing and that it probably resulted in a wedge coming between him and his wife that resulted in the, the break of trust that we see here. It seems that their relationship was disastrously fractured. It was fragmented so much that she was willing to scheme against him, like at the drop of a hat. She was willing to just undermine him completely. So he was definitely a terrible husband but he also sinned as being a terrible father. He played favorites. And it seems like this goes way beyond just an inner love for his kids. It seems like everybody knew that there was an extra measure of love for Esau over Jacob. But my question is, was he sinning in attempting to bless Esau rather than Jacob? That is the question that scholars debate all the time. And I would like to bring you now a little bit into that debate so you know what the questions are on either side of it. There's one major way in which Isaac's actions might be sinful. If he knew about the prophecy that God gave to Rebekah, that the older would serve the younger, and if he understood that promise, and if he knew that these blessings were also to represent the covenant passing down, then yes, he would have been sinning. His blessing should have reflected that the older should serve the younger. A blessing, a blessing was often given openly and publicly. It was done 
outside and with all of the family gathered around. It was not done privately in a tent. So it is very strange that he would request for Esau to bring him game so that he might be blessed alone in this private place. Some theologians argue that he is not just a lazy old man. He is not unable or uninterested in leaving the house. Instead, they believe this to be an intentional attempt to undermine God's pattern of blessing. They believe that because he loved Esau, he was attempting to override God's plan. That's why it says in verse 33, Then Isaac trembled very violently. They would argue, not because he was trembling out of anger at Jacob or out of worry that, oh, I just made a big mistake, but he was trembling out of fear because he knew that God had seen him and had outmaneuvered his trickery. And it should be a lesson to us that no matter how cunning or crafty that we think we're being, God's plans win every time. No one could beat him at chess, no matter how good their tactics or strategy might be, because he's the one who calls out the end from the beginning. However... I'm not really sure that that is what is happening in this passage. I'm not positive that Isaac was trying to bless Esau against the will of the Lord. It's possible that Rebekah never told him about the promise God gave to her that the older would serve the younger. It's possible that even if she did tell him, he did not understand it to have any bearing on blessings or birthrights or covenants. Now, the reason that I'm skeptical comes down to what is said about Isaac in Hebrews chapter 11. In that chapter, we find the greatest feats of the saints of the Old Testament. We see the the most amazing actions being lauded and these characters being praised for their faith. Like Noah building the ark. Like Abraham leaving his home and going where the, the father told him to go. Like Moses rejecting Pharaoh's wealth and then leading and delivering the people of God. But what does it say about Isaac in that chapter? What is his shining act of faith? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, it just says 11 words in the original Greek. It says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. In other words, his premier act of faith that the scripture gives us is that by faith he invoked future blessings on his sons. And I find it very difficult to call his actions sinful when they are commended as faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So I would lean on the side of saying, yes, he's a terrible father. Yes, he seems to be kind of lazy in his older age. Yes, he seems to be a terrible husband. But I'm not quick to say that his desire to bless Esau was actually trickery on his part or sinful. But let me ask the question. Now that we're talking about this blessing, this conferring of blessing onto his children, I think it's worth asking the question, can we do that? Can I pick one of my kids out of the other ones and lay my hands on them before I die and bless them in a particular way and expect a response like Isaac received? I would argue that the answer is absolutely not. And I would say that for the same reason that I would say, I am not able to part the Red Sea like Moses. I am not able to walk through that on dry land. I am not able to father a child when I'm a hundred, like Abraham. These are acts that are all listed together in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and they are not designed to be a description of common Christian experience or activity. Instead, they are designed to be a template for how we can grow in our trust and our faith in Christ, even in the most extreme of circumstances. All this to say... I don't think Isaac was sinning by attempting to bless Esau. I could be wrong. There are many smarter and godlier men than me that would argue differently, but I'll let you debate that out further on your own as you study the word. But if you want to see somebody who is absolutely attempting to manipulate the will of God, then look no further than Rebecca. What is she doing in this chapter? How does she get it wrong? Let's start in verses 5 through 8. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So, when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I have heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare it for me, and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my, obey my voice as I command you. Now, first, This is problematic because it seems like she's eavesdropping into a conversation she's not welcome to be involved in. 
she is not supposed to be there. This is a private ordeal. But remember, Isaac can't see anything. He's probably closer to losing his hearing as well. It's probably pretty easy to spy in from a tent flap. So she sneaks her way in there. She listens to what is going in. Secondly, she is plotting against her own husband. The one that God has given her to love and to support, she is now attempting to completely undermine him. Thirdly, she is manipulating somebody that is under her authority. She tells her son, obey me. And fourth, and most importantly, she is attempting to force God's plan into action. For the sake of time this morning, we're not going to consider all of the sins of of Rebecca. We're just going to focus on two of them real quick. First, I want you to beware of ungodly counsel, no matter where it comes from. Rebecca loved Jacob, and so it probably seemed very alluring when she pleaded with him, My son, obey my voice as I command you. But this text is a warning to us because... We often receive bad counsel like this. And it's a stern warning, especially to those of us who are in authority, to beware the counsel that we give. Do not command or, or ever encourage anything that is sinful. Psalm 1 promises us that there is a blessing for those who do not walk in the what? The counsel of the who? The wicked. Don't listen to her. Don't listen to Rebecca. Don't listen to those voices that are telling you to do things that are wrong. The wicked will often boldly lead you into sin, and then even more rapidly, they will retreat. In verse 13, she said, Let your curse be on me, my son. Now, she knew that this action was evil. She knew that it was going to result in a curse. The sin was going to have a massive fallout. And she seemed to to be like a mother hen to Jacob here, saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, go do this thing, and then run back to me like a little chick, and I'll put my, my wings over you, and I'll shelter you from any storm that comes against you. But as soon as her conspiracy worked, and Esau was driven into a murderous rage, what does she do then? Jump down to verse 42. It says, but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah that he was going to murder, by the way. That's what he wanted to do. Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself. I'm sorry. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Now, again, commanding to obey. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while. Until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you. And he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send to you and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Her tone is now completely changed. She is no longer interested in taking care of him. She is no no longer like a mother hen saying, Bring on the curse, I'll take the curse. Now she realizes that the curse could mean death. So she plans to send him away. Sinners love to sin with you, and they even love to use you as a pawn in their sin games, but their allegiance is ultimately always to themselves. So guard against counselors like Rebecca. If you are receiving counsel that even seems borderline or sketchy, or like it might not be scriptural, then what do you need to do? Get more counsel from trusted believers. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. There are actually five more verses in Proverbs which are very, very similar to this as well. It doesn't matter if I'm the one giving you counsel, or if it's a trusted friend or family member, another believer that you are close to. If it seems like it's not scriptural, if you have any doubt in your mind, avoid their counsel and run run in the direction of obedience. But I want you to see that more than just being a bad counselor, Rebecca was attempting to force God's hand. Now, we don't know for certain if Isaac knew about the promise concerning Jacob. She might not have told him. But Rebecca certainly did. And her plan was to do something that she knew was wrong for the purpose of Jacob getting the blessing, which she knew was right. But there is no godly way to do an ungodly thing. Do not ever think that there is a shortcut to blessing. It is acceptable. Is it acceptable to lie to a police officer who pulled you over or on your taxes or on a resume if you say in your heart, well, I promise whatever money I'm going to save here is going to be given to the church. It's going to grow the kingdom of God. Don't, don't put money like that into the offering plate. 
Because God does not need your schemes to grow his kingdom. No, absolutely not. We cannot force God's hand. Did God did not need Rebecca's sinful assistance. He doesn't need ours. There is never a justifiable reason for us to sin. So if there is ever a time when you begin to say to yourself, well, the ends justify the means. I'll do this so that something better might result from it. I will just sin a little so that I might grow in righteousness much. That makes no sense at all. Look no further to Rebecca. She's not highly regarded among the saints. She is not ever highly spoken of in the Bible. In fact, she is the only patriarch or patriarch's wife that never receives an obituary. We have no idea what happened at the end of her days. In fact, after this story comes to a close, Rebecca is only mentioned in the Bible one more time. And when she is mentioned, it is only to say what it says in Romans 9, that she gave birth to two sons. That is her only other mention that is ever listed in the remaining 65 books of the Bible. So don't be like Rebecca. Run from the temptations to try to circumvent God's immediate circumstances to result in future blessing. Now let's turn now our attention to Jacob. As we read a moment ago, Rebecca commanded Jacob to perform this bait and switch kind of trickery here. But lest we be fooled into thinking that Jacob is just some kind of like innocent guy being manipulated by his mom, remember what he said to his mom in verse 11. He, it says, But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. Jacob is not concerned about lying. He's not saying, wait a minute, Mom, this doesn't sound like a good idea. This sounds like bad counsel. This sounds like you're lying to me. This sounds ungodly. Let's just go. No, he's saying, I'm not sure if I'm interested because I might get caught. Esau was a beast of a man. This guy was, I mean, the way he is described, this man is rough and tumble and just an incredible human specimen that is probably worthy of being in a museum somewhere. We learn from chapter 25... Quote, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, man dwelling in tents. Please notice, this probably indicates that Esau never wanted to live inside. He was an outdoorsman of outdoorsmen. Now, hunting is not easy now, but imagine how difficult it was then, when you had no modern craftsmanship. Esau must have been a master at making weapons. He must have been a master at tracking and stalking and killing. Because even though, if you look back in this story, Isaac says to Jacob, how did you get this animal so quickly? And he said, he makes that thing up. Well, God gave it to me. And then later it says, as soon as Jacob leaves, Esau walks in. In other words, he is that good. He is an incredibly skilled killer. But he was not only a powerful man, he also had an unmistakable physical trait to him, that he was a very hairy man. Now, I am not a hairless man, I've got some hair on my arms, but I imagine this to be like the difference between me and my brother Josiah. When he goes swimming without his shirt on, for those of you who've met him, you know, he, he looks like a grizzly bear in the swimming pool. So Jacob assists his mother in developing a lie. So they create these kinds of gloves that would go on his arms. It would be like goat skin all the way up probably to his upper arm. And they put goat skin around his neck and tied it onto him. And as she's making the meal, he's probably finishing up fastening his costume. And he puts on Esau's clothing. Then comes the moment of lies. He steps inside the tent and we pick up the reading at verse 18. Quote, so he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Jacob is a really, really good liar. He doesn't seem to feel any guilt or remorse at all, even as his father questions him. Verse 20, But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord granted me success. Now, Jacob is bringing God into the lie. That is incredible to me. He has no fear to begin saying, Oh yeah, God's the one producing this incredible event. But Isaac feels that something is a little off, so he administers several tests. Verse 21, 
He makes Jacob come near to him so he can feel his hands. But Jacob's lie passed that test because as Isaac responds in verse 22, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Now, I don't know when the last time you pet a goat was, but this guy must have been super hairy. But there's still lingering suspicion, so he does what most liars never expect. Isaac just asks a straightforward question to to Jacob. Verse 24, he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Jacob doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't even flinch. The lie seems to so naturally flow off his tongue, just like the devil, for when he lies, he speaks his native language. But that test was not enough. The next examination was the food. It seems like Isaac had a very particular palate. He wanted his food with a very certain flavor that not everybody could get right. So he was attempting to determine the honesty of his guest by how well the meal had been made. And then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought wine also and he drank. Now since Rebecca had made this meal, she knew... She knew better than anybody exactly how he liked his food. She knew what she was doing, so she made it like Esau would make it. But there was one final test in verse 26. It says, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Now, in 2004, there was a medical research study that was done by Brown University called, stick with me here, the study of neuroimaging evidence for the emotional potency of odor-evoked memory. Now, it revealed that the sense of smell is the strongest activator of connections in our brains. That's why when you smell something very, very like your mother's cooking, it reminds you and takes you back to your childhood. They evoke that that opening of your mind to remember. And he smells that smell of, of Esau, and he says, that's it, that's my boy. It was the smell that locked it in. But think about that again for a moment. This means that Esau literally smelled like goat. But as soon as he finished the smell test, Isaac immediately jumps into the blessing. He, his son is kissing him on his cheek. I imagine him wrapping his arms around him and saying, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, before we jump down to the result of Jacob's sin... I want you to notice that in this section that we've just run through really quickly, Isaac calls Jacob his son ten times. Whenever you see that level of repetition in the Bible, it is always significant. Jacob's life, in many ways, is going to represent and mirror the future failures and redemption of the nation of Israel. Jacob was a son, just like God would later call the entire nation of Israel his son. But we're going to be with Jacob for a long time this summer. I'm not going to spoil how this whole thing turns out. But as we go through the rest of the summer, I want you to look at this figure, this Jacob, this liar, this deceiver, and I want you to see the pattern of redemption that God is making that will continue on throughout the remainder of the Bible. We've already seen the fallout with Esau and with Rebekah. Isaac now knows that Jacob has lied to him because Esau returned. He found his blessing was stolen. But we find something really, really interesting at the beginning of chapter 28. Jacob is going to return to the tent to speak to the same father that he has just deceived. Imagine that. He just lied to his dad's face. And now he goes back into that same tent, probably just a few hours later, to speak to his father. It says this in verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, And directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you a 
make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now, so far, everything seems great, right? If you don't know any better, you would think that Isaac doesn't even care that his son lied to him. He doesn't seem angry at all. He's blessing Jacob. And at this point, he certainly knows that God's covenant is not going to pass through Esau. So for the second time that day, he blessed his younger son. He verbalizes what we never heard him say before, that the Lord was going to give Abraham's promises to Jacob. And Isaac also gave instruction about where to go find a wife. Now this is important because, remember, Abraham had told his servant in no uncertain terms... Do not ever, never, under no circumstance, send Isaac back there. You, my servant, go there and find a wife, which is when he found Rebekah. But do not send my son to that place. And the servant says, but what if I can't find a wife for him that would be willing to come here sight unseen? He says, in that case, you're free. Don't worry about it. Just don't let him go. Do not ever let him go back to that place. And when Abraham was about to die, he sent away all of his other children in that direction, and only Isaac was allowed to stay. Now look at the beginning of verse 6. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. Please understand, this statement is to be viewed as nothing less than an exile. Jacob loved his mother, but he is never going to see her face again. And although his relationship with his father is probably kind of complicated... I think there was also a genuine love there between Isaac and Jacob, and now they will never see one another again. Just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east, just like Cain was exiled to the east, just like the people of the Tower of Babel settled in the east, just like Lot moved to the east, now Jacob is being sent out to the east. And he is not going out proudly with chin held high. He is leaving just like Adam and Eve left the garden in shame because of their sin as a thief and an exile. But let's not close this sermon without asking the question, where in the world is Jesus in all of this? John 5.39 gives us the ultimate hermeneutic that all of the scripture speaks of him. Even this passage in Genesis is about Jesus. So where do we find him in this chapter? He's certainly not somebody that we could compare with any of these flawed family figures. Certainly we're not supposed to see him in any of these individuals. Yet Jesus is certainly present throughout the passage. He was busy working all things together for the good of the called, even as Rebecca and Jacob were scheming and attempting to manipulate the situation. God was using their actions to bring about his promises. God was not absent from this picture. He was not wringing his hands together in heaven saying, Oh, this is a close one. Esau's on his way. Oh boy, Jacob needs to get in there quick. He's not working in such a way that he is is elevating the sin of these individuals. He is not saying in any way, I'm just hoping that they get this right. God has never forced or coerced or led or manipulated or promoting anyone to sin. He did not condone or overlook anything that Jacob or Rebecca did. In fact... Jacob is going to experience repercussions from this event for the rest of his life. He's going to reap what he sowed in mass. I mean, think about it. He's, I mean, you think Rebecca's a good liar. Her brother Laban is going to really do a number on Jacob by tricking him into marrying the wrong daughter. And then his sons are going to lie to him and pretend that Joseph is dead for years. And then when it comes time for him to bless his grandchildren... Joseph, the son he loves, is going to lie to him and try to trick him into blessing the wrong child, just as Jacob had lied long ago. God is not mocked, and sin is not without consequences. But even more significantly, as we're about to see in the next week, this story is far from over. It seems as though it might have been that very night that as he leaves, he is going, he is traveling, He lays down in the middle of this wilderness place and there he is going to have a dream. He is going to have a vision of that that stairway to heaven where he views God himself. Where is Jesus? Oh, Jesus is there. 
Jesus is not far from Jacob. Jesus is watching over Jacob. Jesus is working even throughout the midst of Jacob's sinful life. Jesus is there. And I want to close with this very simple word of love. If you think that your sin is really well hidden, it is not. Jesus is there. He knows. Everything is laid bare before Him. Now, you you try to hide a million things every day. You don't want people to know everything about who you are. All of those things that are less than beautiful, you try to cover them up. But, God knows. You can't hide anything from Him. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're in an exile. You're in something far worse than Jacob. You are far from the presence. You are cast out from the presence of the Lord. And you're not welcome to be with Him now or in heaven. You bear with you great shame and guilt of sin. But, God is merciful. And just as we are going to see God being merciful to Jacob, who is completely undeserving of grace, being brought into a right relationship with God, God also has done something very incredible to bring us into a relationship with Him. If you don't know Jesus, let me just tell you what He did. God the Father sent God the Son from heaven to earth to live a perfect life. Not like Jacob, not like you. He lived a life without any sin. But the wages of sin is death. So we deserve to die. He did not. Yet he went to the cross and he died so that sinners like you and I could be saved. And he rose again on the third day so that our sin would be completely washed away from our our lives as we seek to honor him and live for him and follow him forever. So if you don't know Jesus today, please speak to me before you go. I want you to know him in a saving way. And believers, I want to ask you, are you attempting to hide your sin? I want to encourage you, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light so that it might be dealt with. If there is one thing that we see so clearly in the life of Jacob, it's that even for the believer, sin is going to result in God's discipline. Allow me to read again from Hebrews chapter 12. This will be how we close today. These are the words that directly come before that passage we read about earlier about Esau desiring to repent through tears. This is what he commands believers. This is how he commands us to repent, starting... In verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that I addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we might share in His holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are so blessed that you would send your Son to save people like Jacob. That you would come to to save sinners like me. And like those of us who are here in this room who have rebelled against you, God, I ask that we would always be amazed and enthralled and in shock of how great your glorious grace really is. God, I ask that you would please give us a passion to love you and to live for you and to carry out all of the things that your word commands us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.